Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello? This is the Britflix Fryfest preview series 2019. Britflix podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page, or Spotify page, or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen, and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters, which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it, and you're done, and it'll be really helpful. Trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the BritFlix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright and this is another Frightfest 2019 preview series and today's guest is Jordan Barker. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We've come to talk about your film Witches in the Woods which is playing at Frightfest. So before we do anything else and to let people know what they've got themselves in for uh, or if they're thinking should I watch this, do you want to tell them a brief synopsis as to what Witches in the Woods is all about, please. Absolutely. So we follow Jill, who's a UMass freshman, and this will, the fact that she's from U- University of Massachusetts will, you know, play into um, sort of the folklore of what happened in this part of the world centuries ago. So she and some of her friends are on their way to have a, you know, a snowboarding trip in the mountains of a place called Stepton Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, Massachusetts, and um, you know when they head off in their large vehicle that can hold all seven of them, they get uh, stranded in the mountains, lost, and can't get out. And I would say a literal and figurative witch hunt ensues. Indeed, indeed, right. Well, that's a that's a good start. Now, before we go into detail about about that film, um, it's the twentieth anniversary of Fright Fest, and I'm asking all my guests who come on to preview their films. To give me their memory of their twentieth year, what 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 does it what does it mean to you, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, if I was celebrating my twentieth year, if I yeah. go back a little bit, I'm a little bit older than that now. I mean, I celebrated my twentieth year by um, basically uh, dropping out of film school. So, you know, for all you filmmakers out there, you can take this and, and either take it as a lesson or a warning. <laughs> uh, you know, this was I think I was in my second year. And I was going to a film school back then. We didn't have what we have today, right? So getting access to the gear and, 
being able to actually produce. We were shooting on film, so everything was, you know, big anticipation for the moment. But you had to wait. I mean, we got to do like one or two projects a year. I'm sure things are very different now. But at that time, I was very impatient. But I was also, you know, being a creative person, I was also, I'm a drummer. And so, you know, I was drumming in this band. And this band, actually, the band came from England. And they were touring Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, the band was called High Street. Okay. And uh, their drummer quit. And I was playing drums and my friend in film school, his brother was the keyboard player in the band and they needed a drummer. And so I started playing some gigs with them and they were going to tour North America. And I was given the opportunity to do that. And I thought, oh, gosh, what am I going to do? Like this is this sounds like a lot of fun and a lot of real life experience. So I dropped out of film school and did that. And as fun as it was, I was so worried that I was like, you know, getting off course. But the truth is everything that happened and all the films I've been able to make probably happened because of that decision. So, you know, it's one of these things you go back and you sort of think to yourself, um, should I have done this? Should I have done that? And your life ends up in a certain way. Mm. So basically I celebrated my 20th year by giving up on my dreams to then be able to fulfill my dreams. Perfect. And it's, it's really interesting because you're, you're the second one of that I've spoken to that's mentioned they jacked in college and went off and did something wild that wasn't necessarily yeah. part of any big plan. And and it, it never dawned on me when I was obviously I was scrubbing around thinking what can I do to sort of make the podcast focused on fright fest and stuff and then obviously twentieth year but obviously a twentieth anniversary of festival is you're established and the world is looking at you twenty years That's in your right. life you've barely started haven't you in terms of That's what, right. you haven't got a clue have you <laughs> yeah for most of us unless we're like Justin Bieber or somebody who's peaked right then so let's get on to your film now you uh, directed the film. And you work with the screenwriter Christopher Borelli, if I'm pronouncing yeah, that right. That's right. Yeah. Chris um, so, what I like to do is sort of give it a sort of insight into the sort of process of filmmaking. So, you're actually the first one I've spoken to that's not wrote and directed the film so far. I mean, there'll be others, but but so far. Mm -hmm. So, just to give us an idea, at what stage as the director do you come on board with this, and what influence or impact does your involvement have on the screenplay for, which is the woods? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I hope. I can give some insight that'll be uh, interesting to some of your listeners about about that very thing because you know there is often a for people uh, who have interest in films or maybe not in the industry they don't know always you know what's the difference between producer and director and uh, how how does the director get involved if he's not writing the film or she's not writing the film so in this particular case I I'm fortunate enough to be managed by a company that manages some very prolific writers in uh, Los Angeles. So they write writer, writers and directors. And Chris Borelli is someone who has written on some very large films. He uh, is probably best known for a film called The Vatican Tapes, um, but he's also writing um, currently, you know, DC Comics film for Tom Hardy, uh, 100 Bullets. Um, He's, he's probably finished that script by now, but at the time, you know, that's what he was working on. So yeah. he's a very prolific writer. He sells scripts. Uh, he is also uh, – he comes from visual effects and is also a director in his own right. But this particular film was a film that um, had New Line, I believe, had wanted to make and had it in their pipeline. And it went into what's called turnaround, which means for various reasons, not because the film's not good or whatever. They, they've got it in their pipeline. They're going to make the film and then either – you know whatever they've got a bigger films they are going to do. They only have on their contract a certain amount of time to do it or else it goes back to the writer. Mm. So what happened was, is, you know, it goes back to the writer. These writers, they may have 10, 20 scripts under their belt at this point. They're professional writers. And so 
you know, they're onto the newer thing or, or whatnot. And so because I'm uh, also producing movies in Canada, uh, you know, I'm from Canada. So when I say producing them in Canada, I'm looking for projects uh, yeah. that I can make. Um, so I, I reached out to the, my manager and just sort of said, like, what do you have that's, you know, in this in this genre, in my space that, you know, maybe either hasn't been produced yet or is in turnaround or, or whatnot. And he sent me a bunch of scripts and, you know, gave me the backstory on this one. I knew Chris already. We were, we were friendly from being under the same management team. And hmm. so we had a chat about the project and, you know, what was successful about it or what he felt was successful about it and what maybe needed to be improved or updated. Um, you know, I think we were very much on the same page and, Believe me, I had to convince him to let me make this movie because I think this was a movie he very much wanted to make on his own. Oh, okay. As, as a director, yeah. um, so you, you can imagine how how difficult that would be. But I think we were very much on the same page of what we wanted to do and what the ideas were. Obviously, uh, as a producer and a director, you know the the biggest thing is where does this the money come from, right? Where mm-hmm. does how do we even get this movie made? So there are sometimes a lot of other people that may have something to say about it. If that be a New Line Cinema or a private financier or a distributor or a sales agent, you know, you're trying to raise the money for this movie. And it's not so much that they're going to give you a line by line rewrite, but they may just say, uh, you know, and what's in the zeitgeist at that time, right? Like the movie's called witches in the woods. Uh, you know, there was a very successful film, a brilliant film that was actually made almost in the exact same place. Our movie was made called the witch. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah of course. So when we were, when we were trying to make our film, <laughs> Uh, that movie had not come out yet. You know, we were trying to raise money for this movie and uh, I had heard of it because I knew it had been filmed near where we were filming or going to film, but the success of it had not happened yet. Right. So there was a sort of a lukewarm interest in films about that when we were raising money. But then when that movie hit, you know, I think everybody was trying to find the next one or the next thing that had something to do with either witchcraft or the lore or something you know, something like that. And that's strictly from a marketing standpoint. Like it has nothing to do with the artistic creation we're trying to create, but the business side of it is trying to finance movies in that vein. And that's, you know, if you can get on that, um, that kind of train where that's happening, then you're more likely to get your film made. Right. And just sort of all the ducks line up. Mm. And so that's kind of what happened in our, in a funny way. It happened when we raised our money and then it changed again. And when we were then selling the film, but I'll, uh, to get back to your question about what my involvement is, so obviously I then guide the development of the, the original material that I have. It may need to bend, it may need to shift to these various investors, and it's trying to balance what they think the market wants versus what I think the artistic integrity of the property is and the reason I want to make it in the first place. And, you know, having gone down this road before on other films, you can really be pulled in a lot of directions. You can really uh, you're fighting for a movie to get made. You really have to learn to stand your ground on certain things, right? Because it's very difficult to have a movie you want to make and be have someone wanting to make it, and they just want you to change this or that, right? And you're trying to not convince yourself that that's, that's a good idea. Okay, or, so, so it's like not falling into the trap of just doing what everyone says with the hope that I'll get it made as opposed to there needs to, there needs to be a vision and there needs to be a, uh, a sort of collaboration on what these changes are, even if it's even if the power is not collaborative. Yes, you're trying to find partners that you believe are, um, you know, behind the the basic premise, the idea, the vision behind your vision as a director. And so that as pressures mount to do this or that, they will also stand behind you and and believe in the film as opposed to just moving. With on a very that, on a very basic level, then what was yeah. it when you picked up this script for the first time? 
when you're reading it, what was it that you were like, right, yeah, this is the kind of film I want to make? What was it that attracted you to? There were two things. One was putting myself in the position of the characters that he had written. Mm. Being in a situation like that, I thought was terrifying. Mm. And I thought, you know, that generally is what draws me to something. It's like, how would I feel in that situation? And then B was the challenge of telling the story because without giving too much away, there is a, a large um, contained component of the, the project where mm. our characters are in the middle of nowhere and their only refuge is the car that they came in on, mm. came in, in. Um, so that to me was this idea. It felt like a, you know, a submarine movie or something, but told in a, in a world that we hadn't seen that before. Yeah. I was going to say, cause it, it didn't, it was almost like it didn't dawn on me till about, till about, I guess about halfway in how contained the film was. Cause I think there's like this, the, it's almost like a trick that you've mm. pulled with the idea of the wilderness that me as a viewer didn't didn't see it as as content as it was until obviously the atmosphere of what's happening gets more intense and then you realize yeah, yeah we're trapped in a vi- we're trapped in a vehicle on a snowy mountain that's right i felt like um there were a lot of themes and ideas um the idea of technology you know the saviors of our the walls of our homes the technology in our cars is you know we just trust them implicitly especially nowadays with our gps's and everything in the car yeah. that we're safe right it's uh but most of us don't even know how to fix our cars right so yeah you, you can't you, into, you, yeah your kind of film sort of does uh everything that can go wrong bingo you lose that don't you in uh in trying to get away from the sink yeah so it's about peeling back these these false these layers that we all have, this false security, this kind of virtual reality where we live in, where we're, especially with a group of friends where they're all friends, right? Mm. But, you know, take away something to, to make, now it's not safe or, or there's a bit of a conflict, you know, you take away one layer, are they still friends? It's the same idea with, with the car as well, right? So the car is, is a refuge, but at the same time, it could also be their tomb, you know? And so, mm. There was a lot of interest. I mean, there's so many interesting things to play with in this movie, and I think hopefully viewers, uh, you know, are surprised at where it goes. And 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 even though it's contained, it doesn't feel. Our our goal is to make it feel, uh, you know, obviously not boring or or stuck. I'm guessing that's real snow I'm watching. That is real snow, and I can tell you, it was very unpleasant. You know, it was it was the real deal, like the actors and and yeah. ourselves. Um, I actually spent three to four days uh as well i didn't spend three or four days in the hospital i spent i had to be taken to the hospital midway through day three of production with pneumonia because i yeah and our fabulous dp and second unit director finished the day for me luckily we were moving into a weekend so i had the weekend to recover but uh from being in the elements you know i had had a cold and you know, we were dressed like in the Arctic. I mean, we weren't quite at the Arctic, but we were dressed prepared. Hmm. And uh, you're a Canadian, yeah, I, mean, I, I imagine. I imagine yeah, you're very prepared for winter. I was very prepared. I think. You know, there's a sort of an anecdote from. There's a great opening drone shot in the beginning of the movie, hmm. the very first shot, and that is like the one take we got because the second take, the drone went down in the forest, and we spent about four hours looking for that drone. And I, of course, being the nice person that I am and friend to my DP, I wasn't – we weren't dressed to be in the snow. We were on the side of the road flying yeah. the drone. We all got in there to help. 
but we were up to our waist in snow and it went off the cliff. Right. So I think that's what did it. I was just, we were trying really hard to help him find his drone. We ended so up what, did, it, did it just, fr- did it freeze in the, in the cold weather? Is that what happened? Yeah. I think something happened with the battery. It was funny cause he was, you know, he's telling me like I said, like, cause you, you know, when you're flying drones, like they, they, you're looking at the monitor, but the drone is gone. I mean, it's, it's out of your sight. And I'm like, he's like, Oh, you know, you just never let it drop it below 50 percent battery and then you, you, that's the way you get it back so you know he did one thing like that and the next one it was the battery's at 80 percent and as it's flying back we don't see the drone but we see the battery going 80 70 60 really? 50 40 and then the last <laughs> thing you see is just the thing <laughs> go down and that was the end of it right um so it must have been the cold and of course the drone's white in a field of snow and trying to find it. It's probably three feet under the ground. They were able to find it the next day using GPS. But, uh, anyway, yeah. So yes, <laughs> you're probably asking me what the conditions were like. And, uh, I think, well, I'm just uh, saying I'm, I'm just, that, that idea of shooting in real snow, cause there's, there's one thing to get snow cause you need snow, but there's being at the mercy of the conditions to shoot a film. Yeah. And, and you know what? The, the the most interesting thing and the most challenging thing, you look at this movie, and you go, OK, it's it's fairly contained. Right. Like and we, I'm just talking when we we're going to make this movie, yeah. how much money are we going to need? It's contained. You know, it's only this one location. And, we, you know, but the fact is, is it takes place almost it's not in real time, but it takes place over one evening or mm-hmm. one afternoon, one evening. Yeah. So that means the consistency of the weather needs to be somewhat consistent. But when you're shooting over 20 days, you've got sunny days, you've got stormy days, you've got snow melting, you've got snow storms, you know, and trying to schedule around that. And, yeah. and then you've got a scene that you filmed the first half and it's snowing like crazy. And then you're trying to film the next day, the next part of the scene, and it's completely stopped. So while it is real snow and while it was the middle of winter and freezing and all those nights, we did have to bring in um, <laughs> at a great cost, you know, some fake snow just for consistent, just to make things match. Got you. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah, the, yeah. You know, we weren't anticipating to have to do as much of that as we, we had to. Now, you mentioned about the contend element. So um, I'm, I'm, apologies to your DP if I don't pronounce this right, but Martin Wojtunik, is that right? You know what? He'd probably, he'd probably allow that. <laughs> Wojtunik. Wojtunik. Okay, Martin Wojtunik. Um, what was your conversation like with him about, about, I suppose, A, trying to keep it interesting, in terms of being in such a contained space as a kind of seven, eight-seater sort of SUV. <clears throat> but also, the fact that you've got so many points of view to capture as well. I mean, that's not that's not easy at the best of times. Yeah, and this movie, again, has a lot to do with point of view. So I think mm. it was very much, um, that was part of the discussion very early on, was which points of view to focus on and, and which ones not to. And... Um, where to put the camera was very important for particular scenes and um, all that was planned out a great deal in advance. I mean, as much as possible. And, um, you know, the first thing he said to me was, uh, you're crazy. <laughs> and then, uh, this is exciting. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think he, he was challenged. We were all very challenged. I think we, we found it very challenging, especially with all of the scenes in the car, to keep it interesting. That was our plan, was to make things feel progressively more um, suspenseful, um, raise the tension. How are we going to do that in a, you know, not only in a small space, but a space where people can't really move around very much? You know, obviously in a car, 
Um, you know, there were talks originally, should we rewrite it to be like a mobile home so they can get up and move around? And I was like, no, you know, I think, I think there's something to this. Like when I read it, that this kind of the, the roles and like, you know, when you're driving the car, you're sort of put into a certain leadership role, or if you're sitting in the very back and, you know, again, with all the points of view and distance you can place between people where there are obstacles between or not easy ways to get from one place to another I thought would be interesting so we we're very creative as much as we could be with where to put the camera but also very constrained yeah. you know because of the space so you know we did some cool stuff we were able to um the the, the hero car which is exactly as Chris Borelli wrote it is a Chevy Suburban right you know late there's a model like I, I believe it's a 1990 was the last year they made that model so we were looking at nine ones from 92 and I was like nope it's just not right. It just doesn't look right. It's the 1989-1990 model. We were able to find two, mm. and we painted one to look like the other, and one of them was more modular. We were able to take off doors and and cut into it and do things to give us the space to work in, whereas the other one was functional, and we could drive it, and you know, it was more used for like the exterior shots and stuff like that. Got you. Um, the opening scene was a real challenge. We wanted a – I wanted a kind of omniscient – sort of point of view shot uh, because we are, the movie is so much about point of view. I wanted the audience to be brought into this almost like a, an eighth passenger Got you. that was with these people. So, you know, we thought, well, how are we going to be able to do that? I mean, my, my original vision was the opening drone shot came all the way in, into the car yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then did what it did, but we couldn't do that. So what we did was we cut into the car and then we're on a, a one that lasts for the entire first introductory scene. That was probably the most complicated thing I've ever done in my life. Um, well thought out, but even so, you know, we looked at how they'd done similar things in uh, Children of Men and whatnot. Obviously, they had a much bigger budget to do it. They could mount things on top of the car. We had to be contained within the car, but we basically built um, a dolly system on the roof of the car that was so the camera was mounted upside down, and the actors are driving. We're in a follow car and we have a device in the follow car that can control the camera, but we didn't have the technology or the money to have something robotically moving the camera around. So our DP, Marty, who is not a small man, was also in the car with seven actors. And there was this amazing dance that's being done where he's ducking and passing it and we couldn't get the shot. And the only way we got the shot it was uh, it's actually an incredibly beautiful shot because we started in the morning and we actually did not get the shot until the sun was going down. Right. And so there's an, an amazing shot where we're introducing the character of Allison where the, the camera turns around and pushes in on her and the sun is like right behind her down low in the sky. And that was never intended to be there, but we were running out of light, but it's this beautiful, perfect shot of her that means so much in the movie. But to be able to get that, Marty actually had to teach the actors how to take the camera from him and have him duck, and they became they helped with the operating. Um, so that was pretty cool. When you when you watch the shot, if you know that, to see how we did it, um, the camera's rotating around and moving in on different actors for important lines, and then uh, to know that <laughs> Marty, you know, there's a lot of takes where you catch Marty trying to duck or or an actor you know hits the camera or whatnot. Um, so that was quite an accomplishment. I think. I think it worked. Yeah, no, well. I mean, and that's, that's why I wanted to draw attention to it because I think I think there's a misconception for kind of certainly for the layperson about filmmaking that you know when something is in something common a garden like a car that that's obvious because there's thousands of cars they're cheap but actually shooting 
drama in a car is a hell of a task, isn't it? Yeah, it is for sure. We, you know, I looked at movies like, like Locke, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a movie that takes place almost exclusively in a car, but in a much more stationary kind of way. There's lots of cameras, you know, it has that sort of almost like he's mounted a GoPro in his car. And that was great for that movie because there was a lot of driving, mm. but our movie was going to be, it's going to have a bit of a different feeling. So we didn't, we didn't want that kind of approach. Um, so really for me, that, that visceral feeling you got from, um, you know, Koran, what he did in, in children of men, I thought we certainly aren't going to do that the whole movie. And we really don't do a lot of what that, that was happening. But when I saw that scene, when I was moved by that in the theater, it was the first thing I thought of was, you know, how can we take what they did, um, and kind of even go, I, I, I want to say further, but in some ways, because we were technologically challenged, we didn't go further, but we did it slightly differently. Um, it was done in a dramatic way as opposed to a, you know, a, an action way. Yeah. Cause, cause also you've got, you've got so many different points of view and you've got the little, the, the main plot and the little subplots that are mushrooming out of the the sort of like like you said earlier, like as the layers come peeling back off their whatever their friendships represent or whatever their relationships represent, um, we begin to sort of gain gain more knowledge of a certain person in the group that we didn't have any knowledge of at the start. They're just college friends, and then suddenly there there's secrets between them that, that get revealed. So you need you needed, I guess, you also needed to think in terms of whose point of view is most important in each part of those developments as well, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think even as much as you'd like to think that we had it all perfectly planned out, we had our ideas, we had our direction we were heading in. Yeah. But in editing, we did play with some of that. Thankfully, you know, that's the beauty of, of filmmaking, right? You're making another movie and editing. Hmm. Uh, we were able to craft really, you know, focus in on those things you're talking about because they were so important. Um, the timing of the reveals and, and, and the little nuance of what's really going on under the surface because it was so important to start does, the film. Does that mean with, then that you were you were sort of shooting with that half in mind, as in like get too much so you've got more variables to play with? Or no, you know what? We certainly weren't. We were we were trying to do it as um, specifically with as much thought as possible because mostly because of our the time we had to do it. We had to be. Yeah, 20 days uh, and, and the weather, you know, when people, and also when people are freezing, uh, you know, for real, it's, you have to be very cognizant of, you know, I can sit there and wear my Arctic gear. I'm wearing boots that are heavily insulated, but the actor, we purposely dress them, you know, they're unprepared for mm. the situation. So that means while we're shooting, they're very cold and very unprepared, <laughs> uh, you know, uncomfortable. So we had to be very specific. Um, but that being said, you know, the whole, you know, raison d'etre of editing is, you know, you create things by where you cut, how you cut, it creates things even that you didn't expect. So while we're editing, we would try things and say, okay, that makes it feel a little bit more this way, or that isn't that interesting. Let's do more of that. Right. So, mm. uh, that, that's the beautiful part of making films for me is like, uh, I love editing because you're really, you're, you're molding the sculpture at that point. You've got your so idea. Yeah, I was going to say, so in that, in that instance then, so what, what was, as well as sort of being able to get the right rhythm in terms of what you wanted in terms of point of view, but what else, what, what, what came out, what else did you discover about the story in the edit that maybe wasn't there when you were, when you were looking at it from just a script point of view? Was there anything interesting that came out of that that you, that you're pleased with? I think the, I was very nervous about 
the level of detail we were going, we were dropping, like you're mentioning the subtext, we'll call it of the relationships because it in some ways references, you know, it, 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 it gives weight to certain things that are going on, but at the same time, there are, these are events that have happened prior to when we've come on board the film. So there's always this balance of like, do we really need to know that? Or, you know, are the actions like for me, film and actors, it's all about actions. It's less about backstory or, you know, saying things that have happened, right? Like yeah, if you yeah, don't yeah. see it, you don't need to. So, but there are certain, you know, those rules I think tend to be, need to be bent a little when you're trying to explain or, or, you know, peel layers on something where we, you know, there was, there was talk at one point and people suggested, uh, you know, why don't we flash back to that? I'm like, well, I don't want that experience for the audience. I want the audience to be again, like another person in the car. So they're learning about these. We're learning about their relationship as it's breaking apart. Certain people in the car don't know about this event or that event and are going to learn it when we, the audience learn it. And to flash back, it's kind of a cheat. So I was very pleased in the end that our gut instinct about that, I felt really helped with the kind of parallel uh, storyline that we're telling about what, is happening in modern day, let's call them, you know, uh, witch hunts or, or, or this kind of post truth world where truth is, you know, especially today, it's, it's sort of like, depending on, you know, which lens you look through the world on, you know, whether or not, I mean, especially in North America, the kinds of things that are happening. Well, actually you guys too, as well, I'm sure. You know, yeah, no, we're not, we're not amused. Politically. Don't worry, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of it in the news right now. You know, if you, if you, absorb CNN or Fox news, you get a totally different view of the world. Right. So this kind of thing, uh, you know, it's important as, as creators to, 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 to put these ideas in the film. Also, that, that was the, it feels like the right decision in terms of one of the things that comes out of the sort of calamity they find themselves in is each person has got a different journey to fight offline, you know, there's, there's yeah. certain characters who want to argue about the minutiae, about said backstory and subtext and whatever. And then there's other people that are going, we're in the shit. We need to, we can't talk. This is of no consequence apart from the immediate problem. And it's just a nice, it's a nice way to see how people, you know, different characters are not all on the same page, literally and metaphorically speaking as well, in, in terms of the drama that's unfolding. Yeah, and we... We were, I think some of the, you had asked me earlier about like the director's role in, you know, once you've got a script. And I think it is really looking in this case, like looking at the character relationships and really seeing where there are cracks and where can we push what's already written here uh, when something goes wrong or when like an, a perfect example is, okay, so Umberly Gonzalez, one of the actresses um, who plays a character named Brie yeah. is there, there with her boyfriend on this trip. But She's not friends with these people. You know, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this experience. They've been out for dinner or they've gone somewhere and there's kind of like a new person in the mix. And everything a new, seems, a new girlfriend. Oh, yeah, a dreaded new right? girlfriend. <laughs> On the surface, as long as everything's going fine, everything's great. The girlfriend, you know, the, the evening ends and there's no problem. But what if things don't go well? And let's say the new girlfriend's boyfriend has to go away for some reason and she's now stuck with these people that they really don't care about each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, the superficial, yeah, yeah. superficiality of those relationships can can change very quickly under different circumstances. So putting things like that into her character and giving every character somebody to hang on to and also someone else to really butt up against. So there was always somewhere 
something interesting to do in a scene. Mm. Um, and also gave all seven of them, I felt, a reason to be there and and something to do in a scene. So hopefully nobody felt like they were just standing around or as an audience member, you didn't feel like, why is this person here, right? So it was really focusing on those. Yeah. No, Bri, Bri, I think Brie had one of my favorite lines um, mm. where despite them going – the the, the, the the sort of going snowboarding, which obviously is about snow and about cold weather, she she utters the immortal words of "I'm not dressed for this," yeah. <laughs> which obviously reinforces your, which is like the the icing on the cake of the phones haven't got no signal, the cars now. That's yet. right. It's kind of like yeah, on top of that, the the first world that's got all the technology it wants. The minute you take starts tripping it away, we're just human beings made of flesh and bone. <laughs> Yeah, we gave her that line especially because, um, well, it fit her it fit her character quite well. But this idea, you know, when we were picking wardrobe, we especially tried to pick wardrobe that felt very superficial, like like they just bought it for their trip, you know? Like yeah, 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 yeah. Snowboarders, they're just looking the part, right? Which is we do that a lot, right? You know, you of course, right? So, but this idea that we've almost um, you glamorize the trip to the wilderness, like, you know, going on safari or going, you know, it's, it's so safe in your mind, right? Mm. Until it isn't. And then you're, you're wearing the beautiful fashion version of survival wear, but it's only really good for a few hours. Like it's not going to blast you through the night, but it sure does look good in a, you know, Abercrombie and Finch uh, <laughs> ad. <right? laughs> when, you bought, when You bought it, but yeah, yeah, it's not yeah. going to save you. So that was, that was kind of the, you know, that was kind of the impetus of that line. So. Glad no, totally, and obviously there's there is this kind of you know the, the modern the modern phenomena that we're all we're all woodsmen underneath, and we're definitely not. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, so for for the for the uh, for the director that's listening um, to this and wanting to learn about, I guess I, I want to say how far to push it, but but given you ended up in hospital yourself with pneumonia, you've probably got a lot more first hand knowledge of this than most. But working with your actors where you've got to consider other people's feelings as the weather's not that pleasant. How do you balance as a director what you want from the performance and obviously the the health as well as the safety <laughs> of your cast and well, your crew for that matter? Yeah, I mean, health and safety obviously is the most important thing. We don't want to we don't want to muck with that. Mm. Um, I think a lot of conversations beforehand, you really like even if you're casting if you're, you know, you've got a bigger movie, I've worked on bigger movies with bigger actors, you know, the way those movies are cast generally is, uh, you know, based on the wants and needs of your, the, again, the people who are paying for the movie. So you may not have a lot of conversations ahead of time. Yeah. There may be multiple reasons why that actor is doing the movie, one of which could be money. <laughs> so you don't know what their interest level is in actually taking it to the limit. So I find as much in the casting process, when dealing with actors, obviously up front about talking about what you're trying to do, how we're going to do it, what the process is going to be like and how awful it's going to be yeah. and seeing how they respond to it. You know, I find creative people, they all want to do the very best for, for the most part. Right. And so they'll let you know when, when their limits are being pushed um, and should speak up just like I should have spoken up when I was feeling sick and I didn't, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you have to, you, you're the only one who can really do that. But, you know, on my film sets, I'm not pushing people um, to, to very, very dangerous places. But we were, we all signed up. We all, you could tell very quickly within the first 15 minutes of being outside what the night's going to be like. Yeah. And you know, we make sure everybody's comfortable for real. And to be honest, I actually watched the movie 
And while it looks cold, it doesn't look anywhere near as cold as it, as we were, you know, like, I'm like, I can't believe how cold we were. It doesn't even look that cold. You feel kind of gypped. <laughs> well, there's, unless we can do 4D movies, it's going to be hard. To yeah, exactly. Unless, well, you could, you could give, uh, drop an email to the Empire Leicester Square and just let them uh, sort of uh, turn the air conditioning right up if you want. Yeah, That'll I'm going to put some ice packs on everybody's seats. It'll be uh, a... <laughs> Watching witches in the woods in in full right. ice vision. <laughs> I yeah, I like that. Well, look, sir, I'm going to put a link in the show notes so people can uh, drill down to tickets and location. But do you want to tell people where and when people can see witches in the woods at Fright Fest this year? Well, I've been told it's going to be on Sunday, which is the 25th, and I believe the time is 1:30. Was the uh, was the most recent one. They said that that, you know, that could fluctuate a bit, but I believe that's where they landed, 1.30 p.m. on Sunday. I think that's the 25th of August, and I am so excited. I, I've been to Fright Fest with three films, mm-hmm. and so it's it feels like family to me, and I couldn't be more excited and proud to be premiering this film um, at Fright Fest's 20th anniversary. Brilliant. Well, look, thank, it only gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Breakfast Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.